Okay. Is Christmas... Oh, no, no, let's do it. Let's do it. Is Christmas Christian? Can, can you find, Zeb, the, t- the verse in Isaiah that talks about adorning trees? I know, I know sometimes they use that. Um, no, seriously. You can just look it up online, I'm sure. Christmas, Isaiah, trees. It's there. Um, okay. Question, is Christmas Christian? Now, now admittedly, um, Christmas um, was an attempt of when, when, when Constantine in 311, 314 A.D., um, made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, one of the things they did, it's kind of like nowadays we're used to our paid holidays, you know what I mean? And so let's just say like Canada took over the United States. It's, it's not going to happen, but let's just say Canada did, and there's a new form of government. One of the things you do to make the people happy is you give them their holidays they're used to. And Saturnalia was a big deal, right? Um, and so they took Saturnalia and decided to make it Christmas. I mean, even the fact that the word mass is in it should be a tip-off of its origins, right? Um, I know some people, Vody Bauckham, for instance, he's like, I don't celebrate any mass, let alone Christ mass. Um, and, okay, cool. Um, certainly, we're under no obligation. Let's, let's, let's work backwards. Should Christians feel obligated to celebrate Christmas? No, there's no such command in Scripture. So whatever it is, it's, it's a liber- at best, it's a liberty issue. At best, we're free to celebrate Christmas. There is no ethical obligation to celebrate Christmas. Um, And Christmas um, went from being a drunken feast day, as the Roman Catholic Church and history developed, to a a high mass day. Um, In fact, it still stayed as a sort of drunken, I mean, you can look up, there's, Serena was reading a book. Serena, you here? No. Um, About people who are afraid to go out on Christmas Day because of all of the drunken um, people in the streets. Then Hallmark and Coca-Cola and Santa Claus came on the scene, and all of a sudden Christmas gets rebranded as a children's holiday. That's all relatively recent stuff in the last 200 years, um, given that it's been around for 1,800 or 1,700 years. And so Christmas has had makeovers the whole way along. Um, Did you find the Isaiah passage? Oh, it's Jeremiah? Okay, it's one of the major prophets. That might be it. No, I th- that'll do, whatever. Um, but, but no, but, but there's one of Isaiah, I'm telling you, Christmas trees, Isaiah, Christmas trees in the Bible, and there'll be somebody who's got a website citing the Isaiah passage. Um, anyway, so what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Well, I think we should open up to Romans 14. And look at what do we do with matters of conscience. So I'll make the case again. I celebrated, just put my cards on the table. We celebrated Christmas this year. We had a tree, it was lit up, and there were presents. Um, and I drank juice while my family ate fondue. It was penance. Penance. Um, and so that, that's, that's what we did. Um, so let's go to Romans 14. As for one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. So Paul's going to talk about weak in the faith, and then we're going to find what does that mean? What are we talking about? But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he made everything. Clearly, I have believed that. While the weak person eats only vegetables. 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So there's two dangers, judging and despising, okay? The, the person who's got the more, the narrower conscience is tempted to judge. So if you've come out of paganism and you know about all the meat they sacrifice to idols and you see a Christian eating a steak that was offered to Zeus, um, you might be tempted to think, if he were really holy, if he were really righteous, he wouldn't be doing that, and you'd be judging them. Um, the other danger is if, if your conscience is free and you eat the steak offered to Zeus, you despise those legalistic and narrow-minded, and if they could just be mature like me. And so both dangers are to be avoided, the judging and the despising, and they're to coexist. We're going to have differing convictions, right? Now, Paul doesn't say this about things like, say, adultery. This isn't like... We can just have different opinions on that. And even in this passage, Paul recognizes that somebody's right and somebody's wrong because he identifies who's the weaker brother, right? Who's the weaker brother? The one who eats vegetables only. So Paul's already admitted it's not even that this, there isn't a right answer. Like, we'll never know, should we eat meat sacrificed to idols or not? He answers that clearly in 1 Corinthians 8. But here, somebody's got these associations, and they're called weaker in the faith. Their conscience isn't fully developed. And Paul says, look, don't get big arguments about it. Don't judge each other. Welcome him. Look at verse 1. Welcome him in the faith. Why? Verse 3. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment, for God has welcomed him. So I'm to welcome him because God's welcomed him. Look at verse 5. This ties into our point, Dan. One person esteems one day is better than another. Well, another esteems all days alike. Now, in the first instance, we're certainly talking about the Sabbath, right? But I think that applies across the board. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. So you want to observe a day of the Lord? There are families that think we, you ought not to work on the Sabbath. Um, and they also think that Sunday is the new Sabbath. That's classic, reformed, Protestant, Presbyterian view. I'm not sold on it, but whatever, you know, there's... People believe that. Awesome. Let them honor the day of the Lord. They want to, you want to, you know, honor the Lord's day? More power to you. That's great. Paul says it's fantastic. Don't look over your fence and judge the person who doesn't have that conviction. And me on my side of the fence, where I work on Sunday, I'm not to feel proud and smug at those people with the more narrower consciences. We're to coexist and be fully convinced in our own mind. And so then we go to, okay, should I celebrate this other special day when we're dealing with things outside of Scripture? So someone comes along and says, hey, here's a high day. I mean, the whole notion of holiday is holy day. Let's set apart, whenever they say happy holidays, I'm like, well, what holy days are you referencing? If I'm feeling snarky. To the, anyway, it doesn't generally bless the cash register person, but you know. Um, you can, what holy days are you referencing? I'm just, anyway, sorry. Um, anyway, you can't say Merry Christmas, say Happy Holidays. If you want to get the topic back on religion, be like, well, what holy days? Anyway, sorry. Okay, that's, that's really, you can just, you probably do better to forget that. Um, forget that bit. Um, I'm feeling under the weather in case it's not evident. Okay, so, so I'm just trying to get a framework in here, Dan. So, um, but the question could, is, because this, this, this issue of conscience only applies to issues that aren't clearly sin. So if, it, if the scripture says we should not do something, it can't then become a matter of conscience. You know, if the, the scripture f forbids um, lying, I can't say, well, my conscience permits me to do it. No. 
Um, that that's, it doesn't work. These are, for, these are from ethically tough, difficult issues. More things like, can I go see that movie in faith? Um, you know, that, things like that, that, that Christians could have different, or use of alcohol, or even um, conservative uses of tobacco. You know what I mean? There are Christians who say, you know, I can have a cigar every now and then, the glory of God. Charles Spurgeon certainly did, right? It'd be hard-pressed proving that that's, in every case, sin. Slavery to something sin, right? Um, but if you want to make the argument, say with tobacco, well, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Sure, it is. Prove to me that a cigar once a month is any more unhealthy than a bag of Doritos. Right? I mean, you start quickly getting to Romans 14 territory, and there are going to be some people that say we don't even want to risk it, we don't want to go near it. Awesome, praise God, He's He's honored by that. And there are other people who say I, I think I can do this, and we got to know what the biblical boundaries are, and that's how we're supposed to coexist. The same thing goes with alcohol, with other things, right? Okay. So then we got to ask the question: Is celebrating Christmas forbidden? I don't think it is. Next question, does its pagan roots taint it? Does its pagan roots continue on with it, right? I'm just trying to work our way there. And, um, and the answer, I think, is no. Um, one of the, I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. In James 3, you don't need to turn there, but when Paul, James, Paul, when James says the tongue is set on fire by hell and sets on fire the entire course of life. When I was teaching through James, and when I'm in the New Testament, I try to translate whatever I'm teaching on. I'm translating in Greek. Those of you in my Greek class, you can, you can verify me in this, Elsa and, and um, JP. He literally says, the tongue sets on fire the wheel of life, which is a pagan conception of life. Life's a wheel, and it spins, it goes round, right? And that threw me for a loop. Is James validating this pagan conception of life? Why is he adopting this phrase? Well, I think the answer, and I worked through this, is that certain expressions come into the culture. I mean, and understand, that what's, what's, the, what's the root word of the word culture? Cult. We use cult generally in a negative sense, but cult just means the religious life, right? Um, so the root of the culture is the cult. And so almost all the things that come into a culture generally come in through religious inroads which is why all the days of our week are named after pagan gods. Thor's day, Odwin's day, Frigga's day, Saturn's day. I am not sure what a Monday is or who Tuesday is named after, but I got the rest. Um, but what happens is even though they enter religiously, after a certain period of time, they become entirely sanitized. No one that I'm aware of is actively honoring Norse gods when they say, you know, see you Wednesday. They're not giving homage to Odin. It's, be, it's become entirely sanitized. All of those associations are disremoved. And so I think that's the same thing that James is doing. It, what came into the culture as a pagan conception, the wheel of life, eventually just became a general sanitized expression for life. Okay? I think one could argue that's what's happened to Christmas. Yes, its origins 2,000 years ago was a pagan moon lunar festival, um, and then it even becomes attached to the Roman Catholic mass, um, and then with drinking and debauchery, I, I'm pretty confident those associations are not present in anybody I know who celebrates Christmas. And so just arguing that its, its roots are wrong doesn't conclude necessarily, therefore it's wrong. You've got to show those associations are still there. I think that's why Christians have, can have different consciences on Halloween. 
um, because I think that's one that's actually in flux. I've seen places in the country where I've lived where Halloween has definitely cultic associations. And then I've lived in like Southern California where, you know, it's broad daylight and it's sunny out and the kids are going around dressed up like, you know, little Power Rangers getting candy. And there's not the slightest bit of cultic religious overtones. It's just, you know, the, the guys in the suburbs are getting their kids together and going house to house candy. And so I could see how in one setting somebody say, this still kind of smells evil and this still has those associations. We're not touching it. And I could see somewhere else where change it from, do you want to go trick-or-treating to, do you want to go to our neighbors with our kids in cute costumes and get them candy? Yeah, sure. Sounds like fun. What's, what's the problem with that? So I think Halloween probably in some places is sanitized and other places isn't, and that this why it's a stickier and Christians tend to argue with it. I think Christmas is pretty clearly sanitized. Um, honestly, the best argument I would have against Christmas is, is the uh, issue of are we so emphasizing gifts and then Santa Claus that we're actually eclipsing Christ? Let's not pretend to honor Christ and actually honor materialism. Fair enough? Um, so, so that, that's certainly a valid concern. Let's not give lip service to honoring Christ in his birth, but really what we're about is the materialism, the gifts, and whatever. So if, if Christ is honored through a person's recognition of Christ's birth, I think Romans 14 would say, fantastic, awesome. And I'm not to insist, if someone decides... And you got to be careful. This somebody decides they're not going to celebrate Christmas. Don't judge them and look down on them. Serena's mother was chastised by her mother because they decided not to do Santa Claus. You're ruining Christmas for your kids, and you're going to ruin their childhood. That's not helpful. It's certainly not biblical. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so, so I think Romans 14 governs the whole thing. Any? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm not told in the Bible to use toilet paper. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, they lived without it for thousands of years. No, no, but bring up, bring up to your friend the days of the week. If they're going to hold to that, if they're going to hold to, I mean, and again, recognize their conscience might be weak, so you're not trying to rebuke them, you're trying to help them see. That concept of being sanitized is, I think, the only way you can explain James's use of the wheel of life. It's the only way we can be free to call the days of the week what everyone else calls them. I mean, we, and if we needed to, if it really were an issue of conscience, we could come up with new days of the days of the week, and then we'd really look weird, you know. I'll see you on three day and four day and five day, you know, or whatever, um, um, you know, but, but yeah, yes, yeah, one more point, yeah. 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 
Yeah, you think about it, every year in Jerusalem, a couple million sheep are getting slaughtered. They would have... They would have constant sheep grazing, and yeah. I mean, people try to guess if they're out in the fields at night, how cold could it be? Was there grass in the field? We don't know when Jesus was born. We don't know. There's absolutely no reason to think it was December 25th. There's nothing to make you think that. But we don't have much of an idea. I mean, big, massive commentaries are like maybe sometime in the spring. I mean, that's a pretty wide guess, you know. Or maybe the fall. I mean, when you're using entire seasons. <laughs> you're, you're not very certain. Yes, Zeb. James White actually broke that down a little bit. Um, yeah. Of course he did. Of course. It's actually pretty interesting because he was able to find. Um, was that, was that, was that, was that Zeb's testimony is seconded. We have t- two witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, just using the. Um, yeah. Like tracking down yeah. who was high priest at what time. Yeah, and, okay. And yeah, yeah. Pretty interesting thing. There's more. There's more evidence that Jesus was born on December 25th, or in that range, than there was that really these pagan holidays that were celebrated, that were then attributed to mm-hmm. on the 25th. There's mm-hmm. more evidence to support Jesus was born that day than there was that these pagan holidays were celebrated. Okay. And, and my whole point, and no, and my whole point is, to me, it's absolutely immaterial. I mean, maybe maybe we got it right. Cool. I mean, at best, cool. Um, it's not somehow more like if you don't celebrate Christ's birth on the day of his birth, it doesn't count. It doesn't work like that. That's not the way it works. Yes, Elsa. I still can. I can say Merry Christmas in December now. No, no, we are not. We are not doing. No, we're not going here. We're not going here. <laughs> we're not. We're not going there. No. In a couple weeks, we'll be hosting a caucus here. You can come here and do that then. Yes. Yeah. Oh. No, we don't. We. Actually, actually, no, we've had conversations in the elder board. Thankfully, God's put us in a financial situation. We've, we've already talked about this. We will never, intentionally, we have purposed, factor in when we decide what's the right thing to do, its impact on our nonprofit status. Um, generally, my thought is most of the people, somebody, somebody came and was exhorted me to last, last election to, uh, basically encourage people not to vote for Obama. And my response was, do you really think he's getting many votes from our congregation? <laughs> really? I, I mean, whether you... Like, is this really like a... Like, man, people are really confused, and they're going, what do we do? Like, really? Yeah, okay. And they're like, no. I'm like, okay, thank you. Um, in the same ways, I know there are many people here who are very politically involved who, who have opinions, and I'm trusting the body can speak to itself. I don't pick up on this as an issue of mass confusion and, man, the body really needs some instruction. It's more to that issue. We trust you guys to think through these things than it is anything else. Um, and honestly, I, yeah, I don't even want, it's just an ugly mess. Anyway. Anyway. Well, there's candidates I like that I don't, like, I like. Like, you could watch my kids, but I don't think you'll make a good president. And then there's, no, you know what I mean? Um, that's just my opinion. 
you definitely would not make a good president, though. So, fair enough. Yeah, exactly the point. And there's all sorts, no, but there's all sorts of questions. Here, I'll just throw out the questions that are hard to answer. Do, are we ethically bound to vote simply for the candidate we most want, even if they don't have a prayer of winning? The argument being, okay, so say Alan Keyes, not that he's my guy. Let's say Alan Keyes gets half a percent of the vote. Well, at least whoever gets elected will realize there's enough. There's a couple hundred thousand people out there who cared enough they threw their vote away, and at least they'll factor that into the policy they make. You can now you can argue that you can argue you can absolutely argue. Look, if if Rand Paul gets ten percent of the vote, that will factor into people's decisions because they'll need to take into account. 10% of the people who are willing to go on record know they weren't going to help their guy just to make a point. They will fa- that will factor in. Now, you can argue it will factor in little or much. It will have an influence. That's one argument. And the issue there is, ethically, aren't we demanded to vote for who we most want? Then the other one is, no, I'm ethically bound to try to do the lesser of two evils. <laughs> and, and since I see the other guy as being a tremendous evil, I'll vote for whoever I think can most stop them. Okay. I'm not even, I've thought through this a number of times, I'm not even prepared to give a clear answer on which one of those is the right answer. I, I, I think I act in Romans 14. So if I was even going to encourage people to vote, I don't know if I'd encourage them, vote for the person you most think is qualified, even if there's no chance, or do you start saying, vote for the lesser of two evils? The danger with vote for the lesser of two evils is we start sanctifying, and we start, oh no, we do, we do. Um, we start sanctifying the lesser of two evils, so um, Christians get behind a Mormon and celebrate. And celebrate. No, no, no. I, I'm not saying a person who's a Mormon can't be president. But I, and a lot of people start trying to highlight the commonality we have with Mormons. After all, we have. They tell me they weren't doing it. Tell me the Christians weren't doing it. We were trying to. We were trying to Christianify Romney. We absolutely were. Yeah. I didn't realize you cared that much. If you could care less, it means you care a lot, right? I'm just giving you a hard time, Lee. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. Well, I mean, it is, whether or not, I'm not saying it has to be a decisive factor, but whether someone hates my God or not is a factor. Whether someone's at war with my God or not is a factor. Um, certainly, if, Right, I mean that's got to, that's got to have some significance. I'm not saying it has to be. To, I'm, I personally, I could consider voting for a non-Christian if I thought they were qualified. It it wouldn't be an immaterial issue whether they're Christian or not. But I personally, my own conscience, that isn't a make it or break it issue. Yes, Simeon. Can we finish the last? Point? We can. It's time to switch over. Okay. Be, any other questions from this morning or last week or anything else? We had a great discussion. Okay, 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 here we go, to the sheet, to the sheet. My last point is, um, and here's where we're going, let me, let me tell you where we're going and then what we're going to do. We've spent <laughs> about eight weeks going through this handout, because we do about ten minutes a week. Um, no, no. And here's the order. We, we did, we covered the, um, the deity of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, then we covered the old covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
We're dealing with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We will then move into a discussion on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Eventually, um, probably it'll take a couple weeks to get there, we'll actually deal with probably um, what will be worth having a couple weeks of discussion on is what to make of modern-day claims of the miraculous gifts, the evidence, how to deal with that, how to work through that. Um, we'll, we'll deal with all of that, speaking in tongues, prophecy, um, interpretation in tongues, all those, those gifts that Paul lists. We'll try to work through that. Um, that's where we're headed. Right now we're finishing up the baptism of the Holy Spirit. To summarize what I've argued so far, and if you go to our church website and you go to our sermon archive and you click on, the, you can option for series, doctrinal series, there's a standalone message on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which I pretty much adapted this handout from. So if you want to hear it all at once instead of 10 minutes at a time over 10 weeks, you can go there and do that. And what we covered is what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The act by which Jesus baptizes or immerses, because baptize, remember, just means to dip, dunk, immerse. When Paul's ship sunk in Acts, Luke says the ship was baptized in the sea. What? Baptist donuts, Duncan John, sure. Um, Jesus baptizes a believer in or with or by, because, Johan, you know that the preposition can mean all that, right? Um, the Holy Spirit into his body. So Jesus does the baptizing. You get that? Here comes the one who I baptize with water. He, here comes one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And he's doing it by, through the Spirit, immersing us in Christ and in his body, spiritually speaking. Okay? That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Then I argued when. When does this happen? I argued it happens um, for us at conversion. That if you are not in Christ, and if you are not part of his body, you are not saved. And then we dealt with, um, there are a couple instances in Acts, most notably in Acts 6, with the Samaritans, um, who were, there appears to be a time delay. And we, and we talked about that. We won't go there now. Um, and if you missed that discussion, again, I deal with that in the standalone message. Then we ask, what does it accomplish? What happens? What's the so what of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Union with Christ, power to fight sin and grow, adoption into God's family. It's a spirit of adoption by which you cry, Abba, Father, and power for serving the body of Christ. Now let me pause and say something. That's the point where, and I brought out the uh, doctrinal statement of the assemblies of God, using them because they're the most like-minded and sane brothers and sisters who disagree with us on this issue. Um, and they, they think it's something that happens after salvation. So I want to be clear. I have no no fundamental problem with the notion that sometime after salvation, a believer can have a powerful experience with the Holy Spirit, whereby they are filled with new zeal, new power, new conviction. I just don't think we should call that baptism the Holy Spirit. I think we should call it being filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, the, the scriptures do that repeatedly, and Paul being filled with the Spirit spoke, or Peter being filled with the Spirit spoke. And so... All I'm arguing, I'm not arguing. When you know people who say, no, eight years after I became a Christian, I remember I had this powerful experience in the Holy Spirit. I was bap I'm just saying, I don't think that's baptism. I think that's filling. I'm not arguing it took place. Or I'm only arguing, what do we call it? My point is simply, if you call it baptism, then you got to conclude you're not saved prior to that. Because by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, slave or free, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. And if I am not baptized by the Holy Spirit, then I shouldn't get water baptized because that's what water baptism pictures. 
And I am, don't have a spirit of adoption by which I cry, I'm a father, I'm not a son of God, I'm not being led by God. All those things are true. So, so my friends, and I've got dear friends who, who believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes much later, we're just disagreeing over what to call it. Okay, we're not disagreeing that it, that it is, that something happens. And this is where I find Wayne Grudem very helpful because he is a proponent of the ongoing ministry of the miraculous gifts. And Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, he is, he is arguing for the continuing existence of miraculous spiritual gifts. And he admits, we shouldn't call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we should call it filling. You can read his systematic theology in that point. So does that, does that distinction make sense? Okay. Now, final question. Six minutes, we're going to do this. What signs accompany the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Are there signs? Um, the reason I ask this question again is traditionally those who hold that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate event from conversion, who hold that it takes place sometimes later, generally also hold that the the Evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit is speaking in other languages, speaking in tongues. I'll, I'll read from the Assembly of God's book, their own book they publish of distinctives. And again, I'm, I'm not using this to, to, to pick fun at them. I just let them speak in their own words. And I've picked the guys I'm most comfortable with, the guys we're most like-minded with. The guys We're going to see them in heaven. They're brothers and sisters. It would be too easy for me to grab some far more wingnut person out, out there. Okay. The baptism, this is, this is doctrinal distinctive number eight. This is one of their central distinct doctrines. Um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of Christians in the Holy Spirit is accomplished, is accompanied by the initial physical sign of speaking in other tongues, unlearned languages, as the Spirit of God gives audible expression. This form of speaking in tongues is basically the same as the gift of tongues. The difference is the purpose and use. So, what they're saying is not every believer is going to have the ongoing gift of tongues. And they know they need to say that because in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, do all prophesy, do all speak in tongues? It's clear Paul does not think every Christian is, has the gift of tongues, the gift of languages. So they say, okay, this is different than that, but every Christian at least initially speaks in tongues when they're baptized by the Holy Spirit, and then those who have that gift continue doing so, and those who don't have that gift will stop. That's what they're arguing, Okay. Does everyone understand the position? Okay. Um, I, I would not agree. Um, I think it may. So my blank here is this. Miracles and signs may coincide with baptism. That's absolutely the biblical evidence. There are times where people are said to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they, miraculous things happen. And there are times where people are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and nothing miraculous happens. For instance, when Jesus was baptized by the Holy Spirit, what any record of anything? God spoke in heaven. I mean, God spoke in a language. The Father, this is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. No evidence that Jesus spoke in other languages. No evidence that the 3,000 in Acts 2 spoke in other languages. They were all baptized. Peter said to them, repent, be baptized. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No. Now, is, is it possible they did? I guess it's possible. We're not told they did. We certainly know there are occasions in Acts, three of them to be precise, where the initial evidence is something miraculous is happening. Cornelius is probably the most memorable. While Peter is still speaking, Acts 10, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they, they begin to prophesy. They begin to, he and his house will begin to speak in other languages. So biblically, we can absolutely say it may happen. I don't see anything in the Bible to insist it always does. 
I'm, I'm wide open to someone saying, no, it always does, but I, I simply don't think you've got text to back that claim up. It may happen. It may be accompanied by that. Okay? Everyone, everyone with me so far? I'm not saying it can't. I'm just saying it, it doesn't have to. Um, we've got plenty of examples of people um, receiving the Holy Spirit and nothing initially happening that is um, like a sign, miraculous. You know, externally. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah, no, of course. That's what I'm going on my next point. So what then is the test? What is the evidence that one has received the Holy Spirit? Turn, turn to Galatians 5. I think the true and significant test, and this ties in with my message this morning, is, is not experience. Experiences are great. If you've had powerful experiences in the Lord, if they sanctify you, if they encourage you, that's wonderful. I think the, the clearest sign that you have the Spirit is you bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is generally a lot more mundane and hard. Um, Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Um, so, so we have examples in Acts where miraculous external events happen when the Holy Spirit is received. That certainly can happen. I, I'm not going to venture a guess at the the likelihood, the percentage. It certainly can happen. And we can't go beyond this written and say, no, no, that doesn't happen. It may. God's free to do what he wants. Um, we have plenty of examples in the New Testament where nothing externally, visibly happens. And, and I think we have much anecdotal evidence of people who've come to faith and nothing happened. So what we're left saying is external miraculous signs may happen, but the fruit of the Spirit is what will eventually accompany. And that's really the proof. My only concern is that it's much easier, just, just as the people this morning were judging their salvation because they were doing ministry. Didn't we prophesy and preach in your name? But they weren't living godly lives. That's the danger. One of the dangers I have to keep in mind is I never mistake your ministry for your holiness. God spoke through Balaam's donkey. So just because God's choosing to let me teach his word doesn't mean I'm anything more than a donkey. Okay? Fair enough? No amening. No amening. Um... The danger, and, and I think this is where a lot of pastors can fall, is they look at God blessing their ministry and it's growing, and they assume that means they're holy. doesn't mean any such thing. And, and so the fruit of the Spirit is right. I need to be looking at, am I growing in humility, not as the church growing in numbers? I need to look at, am I growing in patience, not are more people downloading our sermons? Am I growing in gentleness and self-control? Well, equally, equally, you can have an experience where you, you, you believe you speak in tongues, where you believe God's speaking through you, and you can conclude, therefore, I must be saved, I must be in God's will. I'm doing. Again, I'd, I'd, I'd encourage every one of us, if we're not growing in the fruit of the Spirit, we're not growing in God. Period, full stop, end of story. 
Whatever else accompanies, and we'll deal with questions about what to make of those things later. Whatever else accompanies this gravy, the, the meat and potatoes of the Spirit filling you. Go to Ephesians, and we'll be done. We'll finish with Ephesians um, 6 or 5. Okay? 18, 518. Do not be drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then, I'll give you a little grammar, we get a participle. I-N-G words are participles. What participles do is they're governed by verbs. And so the verb here is be filled with the Spirit. And then the participle tells you what that looks like, what accompanies that, what signs or evidences of being filled with the Spirit. How does that play out? So be filled with the Spirit, you could almost say... and resulting in or by, what happens? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then you could almost argue that what you read that follows is, wives, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll be submitting to your husbands. Husbands, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll be sacrificially loving your wives. Children, verse chapter 6, verse 1, we're still dealing with participles all the way down. He's unpacking, case by case, what the Spirit's control over someone's life is going to look like. There's no mention of, there's no mention of, 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 of tongues or prophecy. And we know those things are taking place here. The things he's looking to are the fruit of the Spirit case-by-case, institution-by-institution. And that's what we need to look to. Now, in the coming weeks, we'll deal with, okay, what then, what do we make of um, the the miraculous, inexplicable sign, external gifts? And that's absolutely what we're going to next in our study. But any questions about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I'm going to limit it to that, then we're done. Any questions on that topic alone? No. No, sir. We are done. God bless. You are dismissed.